The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 13, 1-37. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that would not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learned its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. So we are in Mark chapter 13, okay? 
I said last week, this is the most difficult chapter in the book of Mark to understand because it's prophetic. Anytime you're dealing with prophetic scripture, it's very hard to understand because we don't really know where we're at in the prophecy. Jesus prophesied it all 2,000 years ago. When he prophesied it, none of it had taken place. Here we are 2,000 years later, and much of this prophecy has already been taken place. We are in the middle of a mountain range, so to speak, looking back over what he's already done and looking forward to what he's going to do. And if we're going to understand this passage of Scripture today in the way that Jesus meant for us to understand it, it's critically important that we see that here it is. Everything Jesus says in this chapter, everything is in response to the disciples' question about the destruction of the temple. They come out and they say, look at this gorgeous temple, right? we got million-pound stones. Archaeologists have uncovered one million-pound stones, okay, in this temple. The disciples walk out and go, look at this place, how amazing it is. And Jesus points at it and says, not one stone will remain on top of one another. This blows the disciples' mind. They walk across the Kidron Valley. They get up on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sits down, and the apostles walk up to him. Four of the apostles walk up to him and say, Jesus, when will these things take place? What things? When is the temple going to be destroyed? Okay? They did not ask Jesus, when will you return? Or when will the world as we know it come to an end? They asked Jesus, when would the temple be destroyed? But... Jesus used their question about the temple to also talk about his second coming. That's an important distinction for us to make because many people come to this chapter and they read everything like it's an end times checklist. But then you come to verse 30 where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And now what? If you think all of this scripture here, this whole chapter is about the end times, you have a serious problem. You have a serious plot problem with the words of Jesus right here. If these things, if there's some things that haven't happened or are currently happening right now, and Jesus said all of these things will take place in this generation, you have a serious problem. What do you do with that verse? Was Jesus confused? Did Jesus get it wrong? Many people say so. But the simple answer is no. And we're going to see that if we take a detailed and careful look at this chapter. Specifically, we're going to look at two things Jesus said. The first point that kind of will help us, I made it last week, but I'm going to briefly highlight it here. This chapter is talking, again, about two separate events. The destruction of the temple and Jerusalem along with it, the whole city, along with it, and then the second coming of Jesus where the current world as we know it, the current heaven and earth as we know it, will pass away. So to put it simply, here's the two events. The end of Herod's temple and the end of the world as we know it. Two separate events that Jesus is talking about here. And we see that, first off, if we collapse these things down into one event, right, we're going we're gonna, to, it's not going to make sense. I think that's what many people have done. Anytime a war is happening, another war is breaking out, another, another tornado happens, another earthquake happens, another tsunami happens, you hear millions of Christians go, here it is, here it comes, here it comes, listen for the trumpet, right? 
And, and it just doesn't make sense. Jesus says right here that these signs would take place before he comes back, before, in the life of the generation, in the life of this generation. You can't collapse these things too to, into, and down into one event. And we're going to see that by looking at these two statements that Jesus says, two time-oriented statements. In verses 30, where he says, these things will take place in this generation, right? But then look in verse 32. In verse 32, Jesus says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So Jesus says here, he does not know when he's coming back. Okay? So how could Jesus say, I'm coming back in your generation? Right? How could he say, all these things will take place in your generation, and then two verses later, excuse me, later say, I don't know when I'm coming back. Nobody knows, not even the Son. Right? Clearly, Jesus is talking about two completely separate events. He's talking about the total destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that would happen within the lifetime of the apostles, which indeed happened. If you were here last week, we talk a lot about this. In AD 70, okay, Titus, the Roman general, came in, burned Jerusalem to the ground, burned the temple to the ground, and then Herod gave the command, I don't even, I don't want, I want you to tear the whole thing down. So they literally tied ropes to the structure, and after burning it to the ground, they pulled it and just raised it to the ground, right? All of these things happened. And yet, the second coming of Christ is a secret that only the Father knows, okay? Two events, two separate events that are going on. And what we from our study last week, we learned that pretty much everything in this chapter, except verses 24 through 27, has already happened in one way or another, okay? 24, 27, the sun is not, you know, sun hasn't been blotted out, the, the sun hasn't been blotted out, um, and, and the sun has not, and Jesus has not come back through the clouds for all the world to see him in his glory and power. That has not happened. But it could be argued that everything else in this chapter has already taken place with uh, the Roman invasion in AD 70, okay? We had false prophets. There were many people. There were false prophets. There's always been false prophets around. That's already taken place. Wars and rumors of wars. That was has already taken place, right? When they came in, it was a war. Uh, It's already taken place. Earthquakes, famines, always going on. Jesus says, when you see these things, this is what Jesus says, wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, the end is not yet. For most Christians in our society, they don't put those two things together. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, the end is not yet. Most people, when they talk about the news, they go, look at the news, he's coming right now. Be ready, any moment. They, you know, we look at ISIS and we look at all this stuff and we, we, we want to bring it down and make it happening right now in our face and say, this is a sign that Jesus is coming back. Jesus said, when you see those things, the end is not yet. That's what Jesus said. Then he says, you're going to see the persecution of Christians. We've seen this since this time, right? We saw the perse- we're about to see the next three months, we're going to be studying the persecution of Christ, Okay? As we finish the book of Mark, then from there, if you read Acts and the letters of Paul, you see the persecution of Christians. You see all the disciples, except for one, murdered 
martyred for their faith. In the history of the church, we've seen thousands of Christians martyred for their faith. There's Christians now all over the world being martyred and killed for their faith. The persecution of Christians is nothing new. It's something that we should expect. He says here, you're going to see household betrayal. Father will betray son. Son will betray father. We saw this in the invasion of Titus. They surrounded the city. They had walled it off. They couldn't get any resources in. And, the, and, and Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian, says in the wars of the Jews that parents were eating their children. They were, they were boiling their children and eating them because they were all starving to death. Okay? We see this already take place at AD 70. And then we have what's called the Abomination of Desolation. It's a good band name. But anyways, the abomination, abomination of desolation, it's a, it's a term that's from Daniel. Okay? Daniel used it to talk about uh, when, a, when, when a king came in and set up an altar inside the temple and sacrificed a pig, uh, which, you know, in the Jewish religion, that's not good, right? He sacrificed a pig and did the sacrilegious act inside the temple. And this caused the Maccabean Revolt, if you know anything about history. And, and so that's the term he uses in Daniel. And now Jesus echoes that same term. So he's saying something's going to happen in the temple or a great sacrilege is going to happen. Many people think that this is when Jesus is going to the temple and he's whipping people, that that's the abomination of desolation. They had turned the temple into a den of robbers, into a den of thieves. Uh, many people think this guy named Caligula, uh, uh, in AD 42, he came in and he said he was going to set up a, temp, uh, a, a statue of himself to be worshipped in the temple. They stopped it. It didn't happen, but many people think that was it. And then also, many people think this abomination of desolation is the man of lawlessness from Second Thess- Thessalonians, also known as the Antichrist, that will set himself up to be worshipped in the final times and he will be destroyed and crushed by the foot of Jesus. They think maybe this is in reference to that. I would say yes, probably all three of those, all of those things. Okay, lastly, we have the flight of Judea from the mountains. I pray it's not in winter, he say, they say, right? I pray you're not nursing. Now, if this is about the end times, uh, we should giggle, okay? If Jesus is going to come back on a white stallion through the clouds and suspend gravity so we float into the air, are we really worried we don't have a parka? Right? Is that what we're thinking about? Right? Did I dress for this? Like, am, am, I, am I dressed appropriately? I, I don't, I mean, I don't, like, he could also, never mind, I'm not going to go into that anymore. I could get inappropriate. I'll stay out of that. Uh, but, so all, I think all of these things have already happened, okay? I believe all of these things have already happened, but because it's prophetic literature, Just like in the Old Testament, you had things fulfilled in real time and then you had further fulfillment that happened down the road, okay? So you had King David was a king. He was prophesied to be a king. He ruled, but we have Jesus down the road fulfilling the prophet or fulfilling the prophecies of David as now the true David and as the true king. So I think all of these things have already happened and yet, because it's prophetic, it can have a double fulfillment down the road and these things could be and most likely are uh, still going to happen. The fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple might have been a sign, more than likely is a sign to what the end of the world, the end of days will actually be like. So, That's kind of caught up. What do we do about this? 
What is Jesus trying to teach the disciples and then trying to teach us by extension, right? Jesus is doing this two days before he gets crucified. Why is he talking about this? Well, I see three things from this chapter. Uh, Jesus is telling us we have something to learn, we have something to have, and we have something to do, okay? We have something to learn, we have something to have, and we have something to do. That's my three points uh, this morning from our text. Number one, we've got something important to learn. Verse 28, this is where I stopped last week. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Jesus says that we should learn a lesson from the fig tree. And in verse 5 and 14, Jesus told the disciples to make sure that no one leads them astray regarding the end times. And that they need to understand what Jesus is saying here. Okay? Jesus is telling them, you have something important to learn from this chapter. Just because it's hard to understand, just because it's prophetic, don't throw it away. Don't skim through it. This is not like one of those genealogies in your Bible reading plan. Okay? Joseph, right? You just skip. This is something important. Jesus says, we have something to learn from this chapter. So, what is that? What are the disciples and us what are we supposed to learn? One, mentioned it last week, trouble is coming. Jesus is not promising the disciples an easy life. He's making it clear wars, persecution, famine, and tribulations are on their way and they should not be surprised when they come. Jesus is putting an axe to the root of the theology of glory, if you remember, that the disciples had. When you come back, can we sit on your right hand and your left hand? Remember? They thought Jesus was going to set up this kingdom on this earth that was going to rule and reign and they were going to have everything good and gravy, right? He's saying, no, for us in this day and age, this is an axe at the root of the prosperity gospel that promises you the American dream. Health, wealth, and everything going your way, this is an axe to the root of that belief. Jesus is saying, Trouble is coming. Do not be deceived. And because trouble is coming, and the intensity of this trouble is beyond anything any human being can stop from happening, okay? We like to think that if America took over the world, we could rule the world in peace and prosperity and kind of usher in the kingdom of God, okay? That can't take place. That will never happen. The world is so messed up. The darkness is so dark. The trouble is so intense. It's going to take the second coming of the Son of God to make things right. Okay? That's point, that's second part of this. What are we supposed to learn? One, trouble's coming. Two, it's so bad, the second coming of Jesus. It takes the second coming of Jesus to make it right. Right? And three, he's trying to teach them This is a lesson he wants them to learn. Heaven and earth are passing away. Now, this, many of us, we've been been very influenced by Greek thought. We've been very influenced by Plato and the philosopher. And, And Plato believed that this earth was bad and the ethereal world or the spiritual world was good. So therefore, Greek thought kind of said the 
the body is dirty, the body is bad, our desires are bad, everything on this earth is kind of tainted, and we should just think about this, the second world, think about heaven, and kind of ignore this world. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying that the physical realm is bad and the spiritual is good. Here, listen, what does he say? Heaven and earth are passing away. Okay? He's saying both are, let me just say it like this. Heaven and earth are out of date. Heaven and earth need a remodel. Heaven and earth need a renovation. Okay? Heaven and earth both are passing away. But his word will stand forever, he says. Jesus is saying, when Christ comes back, this world is so bad, when Christ comes back, he's bringing with him a whole nother world. But it's not the destruction of one and the recreation of another, but it's the redemption of what is already here. Okay? It's heaven and earth being combined. It's the remodel, the divine remodel of earth. Jesus is saying a newly remodeled earth is on his way. That he is going, when he comes, to unite heaven and earth in such a way that Christians will live on a totally redeemed, totally recreated and renewed earth for all eternity. That heaven is not the end of Christians. Heaven is like a holding place until Christ comes back. You die and you're in Christ, you go to heaven and you await for the second coming where we'll be all reunited on this new earth. There will be animals. I get so tired. Will my dog be in heaven? Yes, your cat will not. There will be trees. There will be trees. There will be everything we love and enjoy. There will be wine and food. Right? This, Jesus says, I'm not going to drink wine again until I come back on the new earth and we enjoy the last supper with our father. There's going to be wine. There's going to be food. It says the trees are going to clap their hands, right? Just think about that. If the trees are going to clap their hands, what will we be able to do? See, the whole earth is renewed and redeemed, but so are we. New bodies. We will not be, we're going to have physical bodies, okay? We're not going to be spirits floating around like wisps of clouds. Or better yet, we're not going to be morphed into these baby cherubs with wings, Right? And everybody gets issued a harp on the resurrection. This is, oh, right? No. New heavens and new earth. But the presence of God is going to be there. The presence of everyone who's in Christ is going to be there. The presence of all happiness and all joy is going to be there. But sometimes we need to think about heaven by its absence as well. In heaven, there will be no evil. All the evil will be annihilated. They'll be thrown into the lake of fire. There'll be no pain. There'll be no sickness. There'll be no brokenness, no danger. It will be absolute and total, unending and ever-increasing happiness for all eternity. It's the land that we were all made for. The new heavens and the new earth. You know what? As a parent, I'm really going to appreciate this. In heaven, there's going to be no, Dad, can we, or Dad, I wish we, Dad, why don't we ever, that, those statements, never going to be there. 
we'll never, we'll never want anything more than we already have. We're going to be eternally happy. And you, parents, you get this. Like, they just opened all their presents. Then they went to grandma's and opened even more presents. Then they get home and they go sledding. Then they get home and they want to go get a hot chocolate. And then they look at you and go, now what? We never get to do anything, right? This depth of there's always more. I'm never satisfied. And parents, we're all like that too, right? We're all like that too, right? That's not going to be in heaven. We're going to be satisfied. Oh, I, I can't. Just that thought to await the day there's not happiness on the next hill. When I get that promotion, when I get that person to marry me, when we have that children, when we get that house, when I get that car, when I accomplish that project or put out that thing, I'll be happy. No. When I get that degree, no. Happy. That's heaven. That's the new heavens and the new earth. I'm sorry. So that's all from point one, okay? Jesus says we have something to learn. Simply, trouble's coming. Jesus is coming back to fix it. And when he comes back, heaven and earth are passing away like an old rundown shack. Now, this is what I like to think of. If, if many of you probably are watching this show, I think it's on HDTV, called Fixer Upper right? It's a great show. I love the show. And one of the things they like to do is they come into this old rundown shack and the, the, the chip, the guy, he always says, ooh, it's demo day. And what demo day means is not we're going to blow the house up. What demo day means is we're going to take all the brokenness, everything that needs remodeled, we're going to strip it away, we're going to remove it, and we're going to replace it, and we're going to remodel it, and we're going to restore it. That's what's happening to the earth. It's important for us to think that way, because if we don't think that way, we get this, and I'm going to use a big term here, this pre-tribulation, pre-tribulational dispensationalist view that the earth is just going to be annihilated, so why should we care about it anyways? Why should we care about gas emissions? Why should we care about recycling? Why should we care about our water and our trees and our earth? Why should we care? God's going to just blow it up anyways, okay? That's not what's happening. He's not annihilating it. He's recreating it. He's restoring it. He's renewing it. It's a remodel job, okay? It's a remodel job, not new construction. So it's important for us to learn that lesson, but Jesus is also teaching us that there's something we need to have. So the first one, point, something to learn, right? Now, second, there's something that we need to have. Jesus wants his followers to have a certain disposition about them as they live on this earth waiting for his return. Jesus says in verse 9, but be on your guard. And be, be vigilant, okay? Listen, it says in verse 23, but be on your guard, he says in verse 33, be on your guard, stay awake. He says in verse 35, stay awake. He says in verse 37, stay awake. Okay, what is the point Jesus is trying to get across here? Jesus wants his disciples to have a vigilant disposition in the face of a long wait of his second coming. And all the trouble and all the persecution and all the difficulty that they're going to experience in this life, he wants them to stay awake, to be vigilant, to be on guard, to have a certain disposition about them as they wait. 
that means, let me use some synonyms, that every Christian should be watchful, observant, attentive, alert, eagle-eyed, hawk-eyed, on the lookout, on one's toes, eagerly anticipating and expecting and longing for Christ's return. We should be thinking about the return of Christ daily, maybe hourly. Anytime we see something, we should say, and we see Paul do this in the New Testament, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Fix this thing, remodel. Jesus says in verse 33 through 37, let's, let's read it. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. So guys, can we just all just accept this? You do not know when the time will come. You don't know when Christ is coming back because Christ himself said no one knows when he's coming back. So can we just say we don't know when he's coming back? Could be, I don't think it could be today. I think there's things that have to happen, honestly, with redemption of Israel and the Jews, and I think there's a lot of things, and the I think there's a lot of things that have to happen. I don't think it could be today, right? But it could be, I don't know everything, it could be, and it could be a thousand years from now, five thousand years from now. Jesus, let's just say right here, we don't know. And the fact that we don't know shouldn't change the fact that we should be vigilant and hopeful and expectant for him. All right, let's keep reading. Sorry, I just went off on that. Didn't mean to. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, look, he says it again. Stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly, find you asleep. And what I say to you all, Stay awake. What is all of this teaching about the end of the temple and about the end times supposed to do in the apostles? What's it supposed to do in them? It's supposed to keep them from being lulled to sleep. That there's a lullaby playing in our lives especially when we're prosperous, especially when we're healthy, especially when things are going in our, going in our favor. We're, we're moving up the corporate ladder. That's a lullaby. There's a lullaby playing, trying to cause us to fall asleep and fall in love with the present world and to forget about the second coming of Christ, to not long for his return, to long for more and better in this world. There's a lullaby playing. Jesus wants his disciples, to stay vigilant, that, li that they live lives every day with an expectation for Jesus' return. Now, if you had to assess your heart, where are you at? What's your disposition? What's the climate of your soul? What are you anxiously waiting for his return? Are you vigilantly thinking about and praying about his return? Or ha are you sleeping? Nodding off? 
right? I, I, I was at my buddy's house last night, and his little kid was playing, playing with the phone, heard the phone going, and all of a sudden I looked over him, and the phone's still going. He's out. I think many of us are like that. Like, we've got a lot of stuff going on. We've got all the projects, and we're remodeling our homes, and we've got all this stuff going on, and yet when it comes when we're thinking about the end of the world, when we're thinking about what we're here for, we've fallen asleep on the job. We're out. We've been lulled to sleep by our own prosperity. It's interesting, too. Jesus says three times here, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. And what we're going to see next chapter is his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane fall asleep, fall asleep, fall asleep. See, there's this... We have this disorder in our souls. We're narcoleptic, right? We just nod off and we forget about the second coming of Christ. We forget that this world is not the way it's supposed to be and Christ is coming back to make it the way it's supposed to be and we have a disposition that we're supposed to have. Now, okay, Justin, that'd be nice and all, you know, just walk around thinking about the end times all the time, right? That'd be real nice to be just vigilant and just be thinking about that. What does that really look like? Now, for some of us, that thought kind of freaks us out because we think, okay, great. This means that I'm going to have to start, like, I'm going to have to have, like, the beast of revelation on my desktop at, at work, and I need to be, you know, saying a lot of stuff about fire and brimstone. I need to get a revelation T-shirt. I need to listen to death metal. Uh, I need to get a sandwich board. I'm going to walk downtown. We're going to talk about the end is coming, right? Is that what he's talking about? Is that a vigilant disposition? Is that what he means by staying awake? No, I don't think it is. I think we're going to see in verse 34 what Jesus means by staying awake and how we're meant to stay awake. Okay, look at verse 34. Um, He says, it's like a man going on a journey. So Jesus kind of left. He goes on a journey. He leaves home. He puts his servants in charge, okay? If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a servant, Okay? You're one of his servants. Jesus put us in charge of what? Of this earth. Okay? We have dominion over this earth of building his kingdom in a sense. Now look what he says. Each with his work. And he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Jesus is saying, third point, final point. Jesus is saying, first, we had a lesson to learn. We have a disposition to have. And third, we have work to do. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have work to do on this planet right now. This is how we stay awake and we keep watch for Jesus' second coming. We do the work that Jesus has left for us to do. Now, okay, that begs the question, what is the work that God has called us to do? Matthew 28. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Doesn't start there, doesn't stop there, teaching them to observe and obey all that I've commanded you. That's what Jesus says. Listen, you are on this earth right now, in this moment, for one primary purpose, to make disciples of Jesus. That's why you're here. Now, don't get this narrow view of that right? You do that wherever you're at. If you're a woodworker, your calling 
of, by God is to make disciples in that occupation, around that occupation. Make disciples in your own family, first and, fi- and primarily, parents, right? We make disciples of the kids that God's given us, the arrows he's put in our quiver, right? We make disciples of them. But that's why you're here. That's where you're going to be happy. I'm going to say it like that. Because that's what God's called us to do. When we obey God, it makes us happy. I'm going to use that word a lot. And I think I'm going to do a whole series just called happy this, in this new year. All right? Because I think many people have this twisted idea of what happiness is. God wants us to be happy, but we're only going to be happy when we obey him and we live in relationship with him because he's the source of all happiness. Now, can I ask you? Well, first off, I, I just think this means our lives since we're primarily now about making disciples, Jesus has invaded our life, he saved us, and now he sent us on this mission to make disciples, I think our lives should look radically different from our neighbors. Not weirdly radically different, right? I don't mean build a 40-foot cross in your front yard. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about we give more money so we live on less, radically different from our neighbors. We serve more, radically different from our neighbors. We love more intensely, radically different from our neighbors. We live in intense communities, we're open and honest with one another, we confess our sins to one another, radically different from our neighbors. We don't define ourselves by our accomplishments, but rather by our servanthood, radically different from our neighbors. Now, This is the life God has called us to live. It's modeled for us all through the New Testament. Disciples living in community and on mission with one another. Disciples are being added to the church daily. Converts are being added daily. They're teaching one another. They're praying for one another, ministering to one another, taking care of one another. That's the life of a Christian. Now, that's what Jesus is telling us. If you live this life, that will help you stay awake to the second coming. Why? Because I realize this heaven is not earth. This heaven is not earth. This earth is not heaven. When I'm in community and other people's, when people are going through divorce and they're going through cancer and they're going through turmoil, my life might be roses at the moment. But when I'm in an intense community with people, I'm reminded there's brokenness in this world. I can't heal this person of cancer. I can't fix this marriage that's going on. I'm going to long for the second coming. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. I can't tell you how many times in counseling sessions over the last four years I've been completely reminded of my own inadequacy to do anything good when people are going through struggle and strife and turmoil and trouble. And I just say, Holy Spirit, do something here. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. Right? Can I ask you? This is the question. What in your life would you change if you knew without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ was coming back tomorrow? What in your life would you change? Now, first off, I'm going to say, if that thought scares you, if you think everything I would change everything. Then I, I'm going to say, then you probably don't understand the gospel. 
And the gospel is, Joel did a great job explaining it. We sang about it today. The gospel is Jesus Christ took all of your sin on himself, died with it. Therefore, there's no punishment left for those who are in Christ because the punishment has been taken by Christ. And at, also at the, on the cross, there was a divine exchange. His perfection, his holiness was placed upon you vicariously. It's an alien righteousness that comes to you by faith when you put your faith in Jesus. And now you're counted righteousness, you're counted righteous in Christ. So you're seen as not guilty, more than just not guilty, but as inherently righteous because of what Christ has done. Vicariously righteous because of what Christ has done. So therefore, if I'm in Christ and you ask me that question, what would I change about my life? There's one answer that I would say absolutely nothing. Christ is coming tomorrow, I'm in Christ. I'm not going to like, you know, increase my marks by tomorrow. Right? This isn't like the test is due now, you're not finished, just hit C's all the way down. Hope you're going to get some good, hope you're going to, you know, up that grade point average at the end. No. There's a sense where I would, wouldn't change anything. So if you would say, I think my whole life would change, Right? I'm going to say, then you need to believe the gospel. You need to hear the good news that Christ has died for you and Christ has been resurrected to the right hand for you and Christ has given you his righteousness and you need to accept that by faith and believe that righteousness is now yours by faith and you need to, and not fear the second coming, but instead live expectantly, rejoice and can't wait for it to happen. But secondly, let me just say some clear things. What does God want us to do? What does this like? Make disciples. Okay, what does that look like? Well, he just didn't say make disciples and we get to invent what that looks like. How did Jesus make his disciples? He lived in community with them. He lived in community. He saw them daily. He taught them in informal, er, informal opportunities around meals. He ate with them, right? So one of the things, if, if you're going to live expectantly, if you're going to live trying to stay awake, one of the things you're going to do is you're going to attend church Pretty much every time you can, this gathering, a gathering. You're going to be here when the doors are open. You're going to make sacrifices to get here. You're not going to go, oh, it was a late night last night. Let's just kick it. That's not living vigilantly. That's ignoring. This is the greatest time of our week in one sense. We come together. We worship our God, right? That last song, we were singing that. Man, I, I, was, I hope we sing that again. I hope that's the last one we're going to sing, Joel. Hint, hint. Um, it was really good, right? Feel the presence of God. Come, renew all things. Want it to happen. Missional community. You're going to make your missional community family a priority in the new year. You need to be known, and they need to know, they need to know you, and you need to know them. You need to make disciples. This is a normal life, guys. I mean, you need to read your Bible and pray. And I don't want you to hear this as like checklists, but this is just what we do. You don't read your Bible so that God loves you. He doesn't love you anymore if you read your Bible or you don't read your Bible. When I read my Bible, I find out that God loves me more than I thought he did. See, when I read my Bible, my affections are awakened to the God who is. And I'm remember, I remember the story and I remember where I am. So we read our Bibles. I would challenge you, new, this new year, start a Bible reading plan. Go through the New Testament. Go through the whole Bible. Get in it consistently. Pray throughout your day. And lastly, simple, we would share the gospel with people. This is the living the expectant life that God's called us to do. 
in community and on mission. That we've heard good news. It's so good to us, we share it. We share it with our neighbors and our coworkers, and we invite people into missional community. And, and because we're a missional church and we do a pretty good job at sharing the gospel and reaching those that are lost, we can kind of forget the most simple thing, just inviting them to a gathering or just inviting them to missional community. Like, some of us are so hardcore, you know, we want to just be doing it everywhere else at the gym and all this stuff, and we forget, like, sometimes you just need to go, hey, you want to come to church with me? Hey, you want to come to my missional community with me? This is how, this are, these are signs that you're living awake and you're living the life that God's called you to live. We just say it around here. Gospel, community, mission. It's that simple. And if you're doing that, if you're doing that, if you're believing the gospel, you're living in an intense community and you're on mission, when somebody says, what would you do if Jesus came back tomorrow? You say, have dinner with my family, go to bed with my wife, wake up, have one last cup of coffee. Put my winter coat on because it might be cold. No, nothing. I would have, I would change nothing about my life. Now, maybe there's this one person I might call, right? This is one person I'd give one more last shot at sharing the gospel with him, right? But if you're thinking, what would you do? I would read the Bible all night long. You don't get the gospel. I would finally say one last time, I'll never do it again and I'll throw my phone away. You don't get the gospel. Now, as I close, there's just whether, so, okay, here, here's the deal. To put everybody into big, all Christians into big, three big camps, okay, they're all Christians, but when it comes time to talk about the end times or eschatology, you, you kind of have the, uh, pre-tribulational, some of them are dispensational, some of them are not. You kind of have, uh, so it's their idea of their millennium, this thousand reign of Christ, okay? It's not here, but it's another text. Or you have post-millennials, people that think, so Jesus is coming back before this thousand year reign, or you have post-millennials who think um, Jesus is, okay, Jesus is coming back first, thousand year reign, pre-mill. Jesus is coming, there's gonna be a thousand year reign, and then Jesus is coming back at the end, Okay, so these guys think that the world is going to get better, kind of. Christianity is going to spread across the world, and the world is going to get better, and then Christ is going to come back to set up his kingdom. These kind of people think the world is going to get so bad, he's going to take some Christians first, and then he's going to let it go to hell in a handbasket. Or then there's this all-millennial. And, 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 and I'll be honest to tell you right now, I lean more to being an all-millennial, and I hate to say it, but I, it's kind of like I have no idea. Okay? And I think the millennium could be a metaphor. It might not be a real thousand-year reign. I don't really know. But what concerns me is the way these views on the millennium and on eschatology, they're all Christians, but we don't, they're real, it's really hard to understand, affects the way that we live here and now, okay? A lot of times, premillennial folks believe that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, like I said, so just throw your hands up, build a bunker, stock up on pork and beans, wait for the Antichrist, right? There's nothing in Scripture that promotes that type of lifestyle, okay? So if, if your view of the end times causes you to pull back from community, pull back from your neighbors, and kind of hide in fear and wait for ISIS to take over the world, you have an unbiblical worldview, 
okay? And I would say, if for, I have friends that are post, I have friends that are pre, all of them. But if your worldview says it's all, you know, things are getting better and better and better, I just don't see that happening around. I don't see that happening. Um, I think that we're going to be here for a while. There's a lot of work to do. The gospel has, you know, the gospel is going to be preached across all nations. Has that happened? I don't know. There's a lot of nations that haven't heard the gospel right now. What is a nation? You got 20 villages over here. Is that a nation? I don't know. There's a lot of ways to interpret that scripture. But I think we have a lot of work to do here and now. And I think it's going to be difficult. I think it's going to be dark. I think there's a lot of trouble coming, just like when Jesus prophesied. And I think post-millennial kind of believes that we can kind of, in a sense, bring the kingdom of God here. And we can make this world into the kingdom of God. And I don't see that happening here. I see us having, I'm going to say this, almost, we have, a, we have been given an impossible job. Okay? And we wait for the king to come and complete that impossible job that we've been given. Okay? Make disciples of all nations. It's an impossible job. God's given it to us. And then, okay, let me, let me illustrate it because we we're not really into it. Uh, there's this scene, surprise, surprise, uh, in The Lord of the Rings. And it's, it's at the Battle of Helm's Deep. Okay? It's a Battle of Helm's Now listen, here's my thing. Read the Bible this year and read Lord of the Rings, okay? Gosh! Now, the good, here's the, what's going on at Helm's Deep. The enemy has amassed an army that is unsurpassed, okay? Thousands upon thousands um, are raiding, have pushed the good guys back, and they're back to this fortress now in the mountain called Helm's Deep. They're impossibly outnumbered, and they're being attacked. They're about to be attacked, and they're standing on the, the kind of the overlook, and they're looking out, and they know we're done. There's no way we can defeat this enemy. Now, we can try to outlast them, but it's going to, it's prob- we're all probably going to die. There's just too many of them. And this leads the king into absolute despair. He's about to kill himself with his son and all this stuff. He, he's in despair. But the, the true king, Aragorn, if you know anything about this, he tries to stir the king to fight. And the king, old king Theoden, he says, what would you have me do? And Aragorn says, ride out with me. And this is, if you're watching, the book's great, but if you're watching the movie, it's just this moment, it's just like, ride out. Into sure and absolute death, for death and glory, ride out with me. And they ride out in this epic scene into this impossible battle that is absolute surely going to be the end of their lives and the end of the world as they know it. The the evil is going to take over all of Middle Earth. But they're fighting this fight. They're not going to just give up and hide in a hole and wait for death. They go out to war and to, for whatever, right? For, For glory. They go out and they're fighting with everything they have and many of them die. But when they least expect it, at dawn, In the moment where the enemy is just about to get the upper hand, a white rider on a white horse comes cresting over the hilltop, bringing reinforcements that surprise the enemy and bring about a great victory. See, weeping tarried for a night, but joy came in the morning. See, that is our story. That's why I love the Lord of the Rings. That's our story. 
We are fighting an impossible battle, right? We're, fight, we're not holed up. We're out there fighting it. We can't win this battle. We can't bring the kingdom of God on this earth. We can't save one soul without God's help. We are outnumbered. The darkness isn't taking any time off, and we aren't necessarily fighting to win. We can't win. We can't bring in this kingdom. But we fight knowing that someday our white rider will come in clouds of glory to finish our fight. See, he started it. He started the fight. He'll finish the fight, right? We screwed it up. We made the fight happen. But in the garden, God said, one day your seed, Eve, a child of your lineage, will crush the head of the serpent. That's what we're waiting for our great white rider, to come over the clouds. But this, some say, well, if it's an impossible battle, then why fight? Why not pull out, hide, bunker down, circle the wagons? Because this is the work Jesus gave us to do. This is why we, te- this is why we need to teach our kids this kind of you know, vigilance and character and courage, folks. This is why we need our kids to read these kind of violent books. Because we have a, this is violence we're talking about. This is resistance. This is vigilance. This is the life we're lived. We're in a war. It, it, it always blows my mind that this is the work that Jesus gave us to. And listen to this. I'm just going to, this is it. I'm going to leave you with this. In Revelation 21, when the prophecy is, is talking about Jesus comes, he sets up, you know, the king's here. He destroys all the evil and all the wicked. And all those in Christ get to go with him to recreate the earth. And all of those who are not in Christ, go to hell. Listen to what he describes. This is what he says. Actually, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to use the first four words, and then I'm going to come back to the first four words. The, here's, who go to, here's who miss out on God's kingdom. The faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, most of us would go, oh, bad people. You know what he leads the way? You know what the first thing he says is? Who who miss out on God's kingdom? But it's for the cowardly. What is that? People who fall asleep on the job. People who don't go out and fight the battle that we're in right now because it's unwinnable, because it's so dark people that would prefer to hide off and keep their life nice and clean, watching Netflix the rest of their life. If that's, listen, you are called to greater than Netflix and chill. If that's what you hope for your life, Lord have mercy. You have been drafted into a great epic battle that Jesus Christ has work for us to do in this city right now. Don't be cowards. Be full of faith. Don't, cowardly, faithless. See, When we're full of faith, we're not cowardly. We have steel in our spine. That's what Jesus is calling us to. So as we wait, we wait with this type of vigilance. And I pray that this morning, there's a sense that this meal, the Lord's Supper, would be kind of like a break in a battle. It's a, it's a pause in a battle. That's what Sunday is. The world, every, war is going on out there, everywhere, a war of faith, a war of unbelief, 
right? And this is a respite where we come in and we're getting reinforcements. And we're taking, we're, we're, it's child time, let's say. We're coming to this table and we say, Lord, I need to be fed. Jesus, I need nourishment from you because it's, it's, it's a tough battle out there. And Jesus knew it would be tough. And so he gave us this bread and he gave us this wine to encourage, encourage, fill us with courage, our hearts, to go out and live, believe in the gospel, in community, and on mission. Let me pray. Father, man, I just look around at our world and I just say, yes, I think it's so true. What you told us to expect, I think... All those things are happening. Um, But Father, all of those things um, should cause us to trust you and to have this disposition of vigilance as we keep watch, as we stay in community, as we stay on mission, as we make disciples and make disciples, all the while knowing the work will never be completed until you come back in glory. And Father, as we work, we just renewed a 100-year-old building over here. As we work to renew buildings and as we work to help the impoverished and the underprivileged and kids uh, that have been abandoned by their their home or by their parents in foster care and and the poor and the addicted. and, And as we work to renew on this earth and in this city, all the work that we do, we know we can't bring about your kingdom on this earth. Only Jesus can. And yet we work. And yet we fight. And yet we believe. Father, because we know the day is coming where our reinforcements, our Savior, will come from on high. And we look for him. We look to the hills where our help comes from. And as we eat of your body and drink of your blood this morning, I pray that we would be encouraged by it. In Christ's powerful name we pray. Amen.